Welcome to Bruin Source. This is Ed. This is Kevin. And we are back from a very, very long um, hiatus. Um, before we get started into the actual meat of the episode, you guys are probably wondering where the hell is Isaiah? Uh, Isaiah, of course, had some life get in the way. His uh, schedule, unfortunately, right now is not permitting him to record. Uh, so he's taking a little bit of a temporary hiatus. Um, he, I think he's going to jump in from time to time to uh, record a, an episode here and there. But for the time being, he's stepping back for a little while. Um, but we hope to have him back soon. But we have Kevin back with us for uh, more of a full-time um, hosting job. So we're, we're happy. we're happy to have Kevin here. Um, you guys have heard from Kevin a few times. Um, he's another Bruin alum and unfortunately cursed with the uh, love of UCLA athletics. So, um, yeah, we're, we're glad to glad to have him here. Yeah, man. Good on, good on Isaiah, you know, letting getting that good life stuff done. Good on him. Yeah, no, it's uh, he's a. Uh, and it's not bad life stuff. It's good life stuff. Good life just stuff. To be, just, just, yes. just to be clear, no, no, nothing, nothing bad. He's just very busy. Um, so, anyways, with that, since we last recorded, there's been uh, a couple, lot couple things that happened, has right? happened. A couple things happened. <laughs> um, the Pac-12 is basically dead. We shoved a dagger in its heart. Um, Basketball recruiting's in full swing, and uh, football is uh, right around the corner. So uh, let's let's jump into it. Um, yeah, man, conference realignment. Conference realignment. What were, <laughs> what were you What were you thinking when that happened? I, I think, like a lot of people, uh, the, you have that initial shock, right? Because because this wasn't. And, and, and you and me and, and those of us who are crazy enough to follow UCLA on a day-to-day basis, you know, we, we, we read around and we see what's going on, and there was nothing about this. Right? There, there was, this was nowhere. Uh, and, and credit to, to Martin Jarmond and to the athletic department uh, and for Mike Bond and USC for keeping this under such close wraps for so long in this day and age uh, when, you know, if you sneeze in front of someone else, it gets leaked, and this was nowhere. So, you know, credit to them for doing that. Um, initial shock, and then I think just just so happy to be done with the Pac-12. <laughs> just so happy to be done with this conference. And and and, and I am a traditionalist in, in some sense. College football is my favorite sport because, uh, you know, it comes with the pageantry and the tradition and the rivalries that it does. Um, you know, the Rose Bowl was always the goal for, you know, the Big Ten and the Pac-10 teams or the Pac-12 teams. Uh, every single year you start the season hoping to win your conference and go to the Rose Bowl. And that would mark kind of a, the, the best season that you could have. And, again, I, I'm also a closet Michigan fan, so I've been watching the Rose Bowl for a long time. I, I first My first kind of full college football game was the 2004 Rose Bowl with SC in Michigan. Uh, and then Vince Young kind of tearing Michigan apart and then kind of goes from there, right? So I've been watching this for a long time, and it's sad to see a lot of those things go. Um, 
But at the same time, I think the Rose Bowl was not what it was for a long time now. When the college football playoff came in, um, you know, and the, we had this concept of bowl games shuffling around, uh, the concept of having those traditional bowl games haven't been a thing for a while. So I think, you know, moving away from that and then just the Pac-12 and the way it's set up its media deals, its media rights, the Pac-12 networks were a disaster. You, you, you would go to bars and places to watch games over here where I live in the Bay Area and they don't have Pac-12 networks. Uh, and half of our games are on the Pac-12 networks because the way the Pac-12 set up their previous media deal was they'll take less money from you know, ESPN and the cable networks, but then they'll get their own proprietary content and network on the Pac-12 network. And that has proven to be a complete and utter disaster. Um, it's, it's meant our games are played at 8 p.m. Um, pack time, 7 p.m. pack time on a channel that no one can watch. And I think getting in and out of that setup, just from a pure viewership standpoint, was a big deal. Combined with the fact that the Pac-12's next media negotiation was not going to be set for much of a rise, the SEC is doing what it's doing. Um, and, and really, again, the, the, the two power conferences now are the Big Ten and the SEC, and it's going to set UCLA up well financially. Um, you know, curious to get your take on this part, Zed, because a lot has been made of, you know, well, hey, like the Big Ten, they're going to give about starting at $75 million a year. It's going to go to $100 million a year very shortly uh, in the next TV negotiation deal. The common theory with that is, hey, well, UCLA's NIL should prosper because uh, obviously UCLA has been up to a very slow start with that. What do you do? Do you think that actually happens as fast as people think it can happen? Well, I mean, I think the the theory makes sense, um, and especially the theory that you know, with better media rights, with better TV times. Um, that athletes get better exposure now that you have half the country actually being able to watch you um, play a game that's not starting at 11 p.m. your time. I I do think that there is an impact there. I think the reach of some of these athletes definitely increases and, um, you know, we can they can actually benefit from that. But I make make no mistake here. I, I don't think that that was the primary driver of this move. I think the primary driver of this move was money, as, as are many things in life. Um, and at the end of the day, athletics, you know, is, is a business to some degree, and they need to make money. And this was the best financial move for them out there. Uh, especially with, with, I think, in the context of our athletic department, you know, one, they're already hamstrung with this absurd arrangement that they have with the rest of the school where we're basically, like, being forced to pay rent on things like facilities and, you know, we're borrowing money from the rest of the school. Um, that in, in and of itself from a, a financial structure is just uh, like absurd. <laughs> um, so that that context um, is is just it, it's a weird weird thing. And then the second thing I think, uh, and because of that setup partially, um, 
you you know this, and I think a lot of UCLA fans know this, but we were in some pretty bad debt to the point where it was rumored that we were going to start cutting some of the Olympic sports and non-revenue programs, um, which would have been a shame because those are the programs that actually win for UCLA and, you know, have had a very long history of success, even if through modern times. So, yeah, the... It, this was primarily financially driven. Um, we don't have to cut anyone now. We don't have to rely as much on taking loans from the school anymore because we actually are going to be getting a large uh, amount of money that kind of is commensurate with our media um, area and our, our reach being in this giant city of Los Angeles. So. You know, I, I I do think that the NIL stuff that you mentioned will be a, a net positive for the school, but I do not think that it was a primary motive. Um, for whatever reason, we just, and this isn't just a UCLA problem, the world will not accept that, hey, we made this move for purely financial reasons. I don't know why. I don't know why that's so taboo often, but... but um, that forces us to say things like, hey, we did this for NIL, hey, we did this for the students. And and I, and again, to be clear, I do think the students will benefit from this at the end, but I don't even think that was the primary driver of this. But I did want to comment on one thing. I know yeah. you mentioned about kind of being a traditionalist. Um, and, and I, to some degree, would probably fall into that same category, too. I like the pageantry. I like the history. Um, and I am sad to lose that some of that history with um, the Pac-12, since that's what we've been competing in since, or some iteration of it, since you know we've uh, had uh, athletics programs. So it does suck to kind of lose that history. Um, that being said, I would have been a lot sadder had we um, moved by ourselves and not with USC, which which. It, is, it seems like a strange, shocking thing coming out of my mouth, but I want to be able to continue that rivalry and beat their asses year after year and things. Yeah, of course. The, I mean, um, w- I think when, what's what, what's good about this realignment is that, you know, it keeps a lot of traditional rivalries in place. And then you have a lot of existing rivalries between the Big Ten and the Pac-10 Pac and the Pac-12. Uh, so, you know, those things are all, you know, already in place it, it makes for good contests going forward in all the sports you know i think a lot has been said about you know usc is the primary driver of this uh, ucla kind of came along for the ride i think people who say that don't really get the drivers behind conference realignment uh th- th- this this was this is all about you know tv viewership uh you know we, we talked about this yesterday, the LA area, see, you know, you'd be surprised, but the LA area has the third most college football fans of any region in the country. Uh, you'd be surprised to hear that because, you know, you wouldn't think that the, the coastal cities like New York and LA and Miami and all these places have huge college football followings, but they have the third most eyeballs on the TV, and that's with their traditional teams like USC, UCLA and yes, UCLA may not be the national you know powerhouse that people think it is, but in the Pac-12, it has the second most conference championships. Uh, you know, 
if you take the AP poll historically, UCLA is around about the 15 to 17 range since the time the AP poll started. So, you know, if we really want to take this back, you know, the Big Ten isn't getting nothing here when, from a football standpoint. I know this is football driven. Uh, and that's why, you know, for example, you know, Duke isn't in a major conference because no one, this isn't driven by college basketball. But from bas for basketball, uh, you know, it is a big catch for the Big Ten uh, as well. Um, so I do think it's, it's big that both of them move together, uh, like you said, and not just one or the other. Because um, let's, let's keep in mind, uh, you know, I'll, I'll keep throwing this out there until they do something. SC hasn't been really good for about 12 years now, uh, 13 years now. And UCLA hasn't been really good since, uh, well, I guess we were, we were good during the Brett Hundley years, but before that, you know, 10 years before that. So around about the same, same timing here uh, that both schools haven't been as good in their major sports. And, but still, they bring the L.A. market, they bring the L.A. revenue. So, and that, that's what drives a lot of this. You know, o Oregon isn't, they, they might have a better team right now, but, but Oregon's national viewership and following has maxed out on its potential. They don't have any more fans that watch them on a week-to-week -week basis. So, uh, that, you know, again, if people want to know why Washington and Oregon aren't coming across, like, this is why. Uh, they don't play in a big market. And, again, that's what drives a lot of the, the NIL and the money and the stuff that we're talking about. Yeah, and, and you mentioned the market. I think what really hasn't I, – I haven't seen this discussed, and we should probably move on after this, but um, I, I think UCLA especially and USC to some degree also bring – well, maybe not USC as much, but UCLA for sure bring an actually a, a very large international market too, if you think about it. I mean – the school has done an incredible job over the past 10, 20 years promoting its brand um, overseas in Asia, in Europe, um, you know, just really across the world. UCLA has become a very recognizable brand. And from that perspective, I think getting, you know, obviously a lot of people overseas aren't naturally football fans or whatever, but they see UCLA there there's a recognition there now and people know the school they know it for its academics and you know i think there's a there's a draw there that you know people might not be football fans but they might turn on the tv if they see ucla or watch a game if it's being broadcast while they're here um so i do think that's important i think that's that and that's valuable i think that brings some un um mentioned potential revenue and potential um clout for for that conference so um it 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 all makes sense to me um i know there's some the old heads are unhappy about it but it makes makes sense from all perspectives and uh i'm glad jarman was able to to pull it because regardless of whether or not we wanted to retain you know the traditional rivalries this and that like the writing was on the wall conference realignment was coming whether we would do it with you know more of a intact Pac-12 or not you know who knew I did not feel confident the Pac-12 was going to be able to pull anything off correctly anyways I think to your point earlier so I, I this was absolutely the right move and um good on German for for pulling it together for us um yeah, and uh, yeah, I'm excited to see what happens in the next couple of years. Uh, I know there's a lot of um, 
stupid political posturing <laughs> happening, but I'm not really worried about any of that getting in the way. <laughs> yeah, the uh, to try to avoid going too much on that one, which, yeah, the, as you said, it's stupid political posturing. I'll put a cap on this one by just going back to what I said before. I think, yes, this should set up UCLA well financially, the debt that it's under with COVID and what happened with Under Armour. Uh, this helps solve a lot of those issues and put it back into a position where it can invest into sports. Theoretically, you would say that now that so much more money will come in from the Big Ten uh, revenue, that that can be used to pay the coaches and assistants and facilities and donor money can now be pivoted towards NIL. Uh, the, the onus, I think, now is on UCLA to act fast in all aspects here, not just in NIL, but how do you use the Big Ten money to now invest properly into all your, your sports, uh, you know, potentially a new football coach coming around in the future, which I'm sure we'll get to that later. And, uh, you know, again, on the NIL front, uh, you know, stop this high and mighty attitude that, like, it's actually still an NCAA rule. It's not an NCAA rule. Um, you know, I'd love to see UCLA. Well, that come back to this yeah and that transitions nicely to a basketball recruiting um it does the yeah the lack of nil um seems to be slowing us down a little bit um i do think that we have a good shot at a very good class still just because mick cronin is a, a fantastic recruiter but you know, I, I I would be frustrated if I were him. I would be very frustrated if I were him because I think if we had a, a little bit more of an aggressive NIL approach, we would be in a better spot here. I think naturally when you're flying around the country every single week to all sorts of places to watch these 17, 18, 16, 17, 18-year-olds play, and the reason you can't close the deal is because your own school is kind of hamstringing you a bit here. Um uh, that would that would definitely be frustrating. Uh, I, I think, again, you know, there's two sides to this. There's UCLA who won't orchestrate the donors in the way that you know some other schools that are earlier on to NIL here are doing. And and again, to be clear, you know, NIL is name image likeness, which means that after you go to a school, technically, you should be able to profit off of your name image likeness because of your accomplishments at said school. And on the true definition of that, I'll say, yes, UCLA has started some initiatives. Uh, you have some exchanges they've started and that all looks, looks good. Uh, but the real way that NIL is being weaponized is with recruiting on a pay for play basis where recruits come to your campus, you give them so said NIL deals that magically appear after they sign. And then that's their, your way to pay for play them. And that's the front where UCLA pretty consistently has said, you know, hey, we want to follow the lead on this one, not be the lead. Um, me, me personally, again, the NCAA was never big on enforcing rules unless you were so egregious about it. Uh, you know, if you think about how NCAA violations have happened uh, in the past, I mean, the SMU death penalty was because they lied to NCAA investigators three, four times over. Uh, the SC uh, penalties that happened in the 2000s was because it was so blatantly obvious that, uh, you know, everyone had what they had, you know, Reggie Bush with the house, Lindell Light with the cars. Not that that was a problem, but it was so blatantly obvious they had to do something. And, uh, you know, 
that's the pattern of how the NCAA has done things. And it's pretty crazy to me that now this stuff has all essentially been legalized, um, yeah, that the school still doesn't want to put rally this, the support around this one thing. The other side to this is just the donors themselves. And UCLA has donors. UCLA has a lot of wealthy alums who do donate to the athletic department. Somehow those donors haven't come to the plate yet, specifically when it comes to NIL. Um, they haven't put together, you know, their own, you know, collective, at least in a way that's visible right now, that's actively going out and recruit in the recruiting phase and getting players. Uh, so it's kind of, there's two sides of the coin here where, yes, UCLA needs to rally those donors, but you would think also that our, our donor base would already have put something together seeing kind of what's going on here. Yeah, and I, we we know there's stuff in the works, right? Um, there's there's an effort on Bruin Report Online that are being orchestrated through there by some donors that seems to be catching steam, but there's not a lot of public, um, I guess, public... Uh, knowledge around some of these donor um, led kind of initiatives and I think that we need to be doing a little bit more of that um, it's it's you know it's not not complicated right you raise you know a million million bucks and uh, each guy gets a hundred K for the year right like it's when you when you put it in the grand scheme of things it's not that much money needed to actually provide like a pretty decent like uh nil deal for a player right and this is just coming directly from donors that that are being put together for the players this isn't any of the deals that players and sponsorships that players can get for themselves right so you know when you think about that they can make a lot of money as long as we can just kind of give them I hate to call it this, but like a base salary, <laughs> just to start with, is not is not that difficult to achieve. But um, we'll see where it comes, what what comes with it. But you know, from a recruiting perspective, you know what we're looking at. I think we we're still expected and looks like projected to have a pretty good class. Um, I know we still have not gotten an actual commit yet. But I, I'm not panicking about that yet. I do trust that Mick Cronin is going to get guys that will be able to contribute and play, and, de- and they will always develop under him, that I'm convinced of. But um, I think it's just playing out a little slower than, than we all imagined. I think I feel better about this than I did you know, two or three months ago. Uh, just because we've extended more offers, uh, it looks like there are enough people who have reciprocated to those offers. And, you know, we're in the final push now with, I would say, about, you know, anywhere between four to seven kids now that, you know, you you would think we would be able to close out and get anywhere between three to five of them. And we do need a big class, so I would say like four to five is the minimum number. Um I think what I like about this this current crop that Mick has gone after is um, you know two things. There's a mix of you know top end five star talent, and then there's a lot of 
replenishing to do with the roster in terms of just getting long-term guys. Um, but I also like the fact that he hasn't gone out and offered you know tons and tons of people because if you get a seven, eight-man class here with players who you're not so convinced about, you don't get to replace them again for another four years. Um, and we're back in the same boat, you know, in, in four years' time. So I think it's the, – the planning seems to be let's take four people, five people, and then see what happens in the transfer portal. I think that's a good plan. So that's that's one side. We have a mix of five-star. and It's very intentional for sure. Yeah, right, and, and younger talent. The other side of it is specifically when we look at the type of wing players that we're recruiting, it, it, it's clear that – he wants some six 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 seven or taller, really six seven or taller, athletic dudes on the team. Um, you know, the the first group that he inherited from Steve Alford, uh, you know, did a lot of great things. Uh, they weren't known for their athletic prowess, right? Guys like Jules Bernard, guys like Johnny Juzang, um, you know, David Singleton, all very good players in their own right. They weren't known for their athletic prowess, um, and that that hurt UCLA at times, especially in the style that Mick likes to play. So, I like the style of players going after here too, without going into any one of them in particular. Yeah, no, I I completely agree with you. I um, everything that Mick is doing with on term in terms of recruiting feels like the right move. Um, it's just a matter of who's going to pull the trigger first. And it feels like one of those classes where you get one commit and we're going to just kind of get a flood of commits in very shortly after. Um, It's just a matter of seeing that first domino fall. And I think it will make UCLA fans feel a lot better too once that first domino falls. We get that first um, commit back. But we'll see. Um, I think... um, Again, we, we you, you said earlier we need a big class. I think we have a good good uh, mix of players lined up for it, and we'll see what happens in the transfer portal too. Um, not only next for next class, but also this this current class because we are allegedly have a commitment from an Italian prospect um, who again is that. You know, six six, athletic type wing that Mick is looking for. Um, so we'll see if that actually comes through. Um, we're still waiting to hear back on whether or not he is eligible or not. But if he comes through, I think you know our roster is pretty set for this next season. He's kind of that Jules Bernard um, repl- would be that Jules Bernard replacement, and um, we'd be we'd be good to go. But you know, a lot, lot going on in the recruiting trail. Um, yeah, so this is and, uh, Abramo Kanaka. I hope he's, I'm saying that. Uh, Sanka. 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 Abramo Sanka from Italy. Uh, still has to get declared NCAA eligible, which you hope could happen. He, he was a pro overseas, but you'd hope that could happen. I, I actually kind of well, see he him. played for a pro team, which apparently does not always make you a pro in Europe. I don't know how that works. But. People come from there all the time, and they get declared eligible. So I would really hope that he doesn't get declared ineligible, um, unless it's just UCLA admissions that that happens to do that. Um, but but in any case, I, I almost see him as a Peyton Watson replacement, right? Like this is a six seven athletic wing that has you know raw potential without the Peyton Watson expectations. 
right? He can actually play the the five to eight minutes a game that we need him to play and get better versus like coming in with those five star expectations. Because if you look at our roster, that's actually kind of what we need. You know, we don't need a true. I I, I don't think we need a true replacement for Jules Bernard or Johnny Juzang in a one to one fashion. I don't think that that player exists, even if we we wanted them. Um, I think we got a pretty solid rotation. We got starters in Amari Bailey and Jalen Clark. You got bench players like David Singleton, Will McClendon, you know, Dylan Andrews. Obviously, you got two superstar, you know, pre- maybe preseason All-American players coming back in Tiger Campbell and Jaime Jaquez. So, you know, I think our backcourt rotation is kind of more or less set with two exceptions. One, we don't have that, again, that 6'7 defender um, with all that length. I think we have very good defenders, very athletic defenders, but that 6'7 guy that can just lock people up with his length um, is what we're missing. And that's what we get, I think, with a prospect like Abrama Sanka. Um, is, again, you don't have the big, any big expectations. It also helps us for the following year's class because if this, if this player comes and has – multiple years of eligibility the first year he can play behind all these folks and then the following year there's going to be a lot of opportunity to play uh, you know we're going to have a pretty clean slate the following year and that helps I think going forward as well yeah and I, I think he's exactly that defender type player that that you mentioned uh, everything I've read about him has mentioned that his defense is ahead of his offense um, so that he will be that kind of plug and play defender. And and the good news is he's, you know, he's raw but battle tested, right? He's been playing in competitive leagues in Europe. Now, you know, the the level of quality in those leagues who knows how high they are, but you know, he's still playing in a in a competitive environment, been training. So it's not like we're getting um someone who's not somewhat battle tested and and it's you know going to be against not just high school kids right like uh, other pro older players um I, so you know I, I to your point i hope this guy gets uh put through um comes through with the eligibility uh, from both UCLA's academics and the NCAA uh, I gotta imagine that Cronin has done his homework and thinks that he will be eligible from the NCAA side, and I would hope that he's already cleared it with the school before you know really pursuing him. But um, yeah, we'll see what happens, and I think that'll, like you said, set us up pretty well for this coming season, but also for the future, and we can um, not worry about you know trying to fill. 10 spots four years down the line i know i know we got to get to that other revenue sport that we play here um but but what do you what do you feel like about the, how this roster panned out for basketball i mean I, there, there were a lot of I think, mixed opinions about this and i actually am still pretty I, I i like how it how it's shaping up um you know with a couple of exceptions i don't know how you feel about that uh for this upcoming season for this upcoming season I think from a raw talent perspective, it's probably the most talented roster that Mick has had. When you think about, you know, Johnny Juzang obviously was, you know, 
a, a superstar for the tournament and sadly didn't live up to that as much last season, but I'd argue a lot of that was due to injuries and COVID. Um, but I, I think from top to bottom, this team is a really great combination of very high-end talent, a lot more athleticism, and a good amount of experience, right? When you think about, you know, obviously, Hakez, Tiger, both have been very battle-tested now for several years. Um, they don't have the top-end athleticism, but those guys are just ballers. Smart, uh, smart players just know how to win. You got a guy like Bailey, and you got Adam Bona, who are both, you know, obviously very young, inexperienced, but they're probably projected to have some of the most talent from a pure talent, raw talent perspective, um, as well as the athleticism. Uh, I don't know if you've been watching some of the uh, USA under, I think, 21 um, highlights with Bona in them. I, the the dude the dude is like a, a a man amongst children, um, just from an athleticism perspective, like he's incredible, and I have not seen that with a UCLA team in quite a long time. Yeah, um, like yeah, it's been a very very long time. So that that in and of itself is exciting, and then and then we have some depth, right? We have returning. Um, experienced depth. I mean, we have Jalen Clark, who was incredible last year, who was just a defensive specialist and showed in flashes of being an offensive monster who I think will be starting this season. Um, so, you know, being able to see him really step up to the plate will be exciting. You know, a Singleton being back, again, providing some shooting off the bench. I'm excited to see Will McClendon um, come through. You know, I he obviously was hurt last season, but just being with the team, you gotta imagine he's learned some some experienced um, things from from the rest of the guys. So it's 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 a great mix. I think it is a very well balanced team because of that. So we'll see how it shapes up. Um, but you know, barring any injuries or anything like that, fingers crossed. I'm really excited for this team. Yeah, uh, it's definitely the most athletic team I think that we're going to have in quite some time. Um, our wing defenders this year, I think we'll finally be able to play how Mick wants us to play, which is, again, pressure defense, man-to-man. You know, you take your man with no help. Uh, you know, with, with Amari Bailey and Jalen Clark now guarding those two positions, uh, the problems we had last year with athletic guards – uh, kind of just taking over and going off on us and not putting in other players off the bench. I think that kind of will take care of itself for two reasons. One, Bailey and Clark themselves, you know, you think they should be the the starters in at the end of the games to take care of those play, those situations. Uh, but then also we don't have a situation like last year where you have, you know, six, seven guys off the bench that you feel like should be playing, um, you know, pretty much everyone has their roles the way this is shaping up. Uh, you know, Will McClendon will be off the bench and you'll have the role of coming in and shooting and defending. David Singleton will be a, a shooting specialist off the bench. Dylan Andrews will be the backup point guard. So 
you have those kind of set roles in the backcourt and in the frontcourt. Again, you have Jaime Jaquez, who you should should contend for a lot of preseason honors. Adem Bona, I'm really excited about. Um, you know, again, I, I think if you had the way this works out is good because if you had Miles Johnson say behind him or in front of him or Cody Riley again. I don't know if a Dembona plays as much as we'd like this year uh, because Mick is not very forgiving when it comes to mistakes, foul trouble. And I think just watching whatever highlights and such you can see of a Dembona so far, he's insanely physically gifted. That's all. There's no denying that. You can see he might have some trouble with foul trouble, uh, you know, early on in his career as a freshman. Uh, And I think, you know, foul trouble, turnovers, Mick would bench him for that. But the only guy he has left now is Mac Etienne. And the two kind of complement each other well. You got Bona, who is the defensive specialist, the lob specialist, uh, power player. Mac Etienne is the you know the finesse offensive you know post moves uh, kind of player, the scoring touch. So both of them have kind of complementary skills there. Um, and yeah, if we get this you know other player coming in, you know Bramo Sanka, uh, then I think we round out the roster pretty well. Yeah, um, exciting stuff. I can't wait till till November. Um, All right, I delayed us as long was... as we could. We got to talk about it. Well, so I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna actually say to spare us for this episode. I don't think we have the time to really talk about this. Um, the black sheep of the family right now. So I think we will have to skip football and cover it next week. But we, I will just mention, fall camp is right around the corner, and we're only a few weeks away from, um, really, like a, about a month away from getting kicked off here. Yeah, it's just as we finish off here, because of all this realignment stuff, you know, UCLA has been on the on 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 the TV quite quite a bit more on the national media. It's just crazy how much people have responded to this eight and four season and saying that we're on an upward trend now, purely because of how bad the previous two years were. Um, you know, it's you, you can see that Chip Kelly has a lot of friends in the national media uh, that that help kind of prop it up like that. Um, yeah, it's it's been pretty interesting to watch. Yeah. We'll we'll get into a little bit more, but the ten and two, eleven and one predictions, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. Nope. So not at all. But we'll save that for next time. Um, other than that, you know, we're we're glad to be back in the seat, and uh, we will catch you next week with some. Sadly or not sadly, depending on your perspective, um, football takes. Uh, Other than that, we're signing off and go Bruins. Go Bruins.